So thing about myself that I'll tell you is that I probably spend way too much time on the internet watching YouTube. Um, right? Like, I love, I'm a sucker for a DIY, like, you know, carpenter who's doing, like, a time lapse. He's, like, building some really nice table with some stuff. Like, I just love watching those things. Or um, those videos with, like, the wood lathes, like, wood turning, where they're spinning a piece of wood, and he's, like, carving a bowl out of it. And I just find that stuff so fascinating. Um, and the thing is, is I'm not, I'm not really much of a carpenter, uh, but my dad, my dad, on the other hand, he's been a carpenter since his teenage years. Uh, he's actually won a couple of awards for his uh, carpentry work. Now, which of the two of us would you want to have show up to build your deck on a weekend? Yeah, that's an easy answer, right? Um, I, also, I also really enjoy a good cop show. I love a good TV lawyer crime drama. Got to watch me some Law & Order, right? Um, I love a good mystery thriller book or movie. Um, love watching like the clues come together and figuring it all out and the good guy catching the bad guy. Um, but my brother, my brother's actually a deputy in a sheriff's department. Um, and so if you like you had a crime to report, which of the two of us would you want to have show up? Again, not me. It's a simple question, right? Like you obviously you don't want the fan. You want the professional. You want the person who's been trained, who has experience, who knows what they're doing and is going to be equipped for the task, who has the sort of calling, as it were, to do that thing. And that's kind of the question I'm kind of asking today, the question that we're kind of going to be examining is about our own faith. Do we have the faith of a fan or a disciple, right? Like, that's the question that's really being asked here, because you don't want a fan to show up to build your deck. You want somebody who's a disciple, to show up, someone who really knows what it's like. And, and to put it into uh, Christ's words, I want to look at Matthew chapter 7 here briefly. And these are Christ's words speaking, and he says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but, though, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so to frame the discussion today in the words of Christ, I'm asking the question, are we the people who confess Lord, Lord with our lips? but not with our lives? How do we actually be and become the disciples that Christ has called us to be? Because we want to be someone who has substance to our faith, who has the power of the Holy Spirit with us in Christ, abiding with us and transforming and changing us in our lives around us. Right? If someone were to sit down across from the table from you and ask, I need some help in my spiritual life, would we be able to speak out of personal experience, out of our own walk? Or would we be simply regurgitating what we saw in a YouTube video? Can we speak with experience and authority? Are we being shaped and formed by Christ rather than our own desires? I found this quote by Kierkegaard that I think puts this in really clear form here. He says that the difference between an admirer 
and a follower still remains, no matter where you are. The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe, though in words, phrases, and songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ. He renounces nothing, gives up nothing, and will not reconstruct his life, will not be what he admires, and will not let his life express what he supposedly admires. Right? That, that last sentence, that last phrase really gets me. Not letting your life express, be transformed by, show the very thing that you say that you admire. Speaking in words and songs of Christ, but not actually having Christ come out and through your life. And so this is the question for today. This is what I want to look at and see. What does Christ have for us? What does it take to be a disciple? What is the cost of that? Because I think we all desire, we need in this world a faith that has substance to it. A faith that is not that of a fan, but of a disciple. So I'm going to turn forward to our main passage today. That's going to be in Luke chapter 14. And here Jesus is going about and traveling and teaching, and he has this large crowd following him, right? Enough people that, like, many people would love to have that many Instagram followers have following them. And so here in Luke chapter 14, in verse 25, we see Christ's words as he turns to address this group of people that are following him, this fans, if you were, if you would have, um, that are following and listening to him. And so here in verse 25 of chapter 14, it says that now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and child and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's, that's some pretty harsh words, right? Like, if I was Jesus' like, PR manager, I'd be like, Jesus, you can't be saying that. Like, that's not your brand. Um, like, just a couple chapters ago, you were talking about, like, the Good Samaritan and the Golden Rule and how we ought to be loving our neighbor. Like, that's what you're about. You're not about this whole hating your family, right? Like, this passage should make us slightly uncomfortable because Jesus is saying something pretty radical here. But it doesn't quite make sense, right? Because, like, we, well, there's the Golden Rule. Isn't Christ love like aren't we supposed to love our neighbors and others like am I truly supposed to walk around with like anger in my heart toward like my family what does he mean when he says to hate even your own life your brothers your sisters your wife and sons and daughters and I want to kind of frame it for you in sort of at least an example I can understand I to understand anything I have to put it in the context of food um, and so I just love ice cream. That's one of my favorite treats. I'll just do anything for a good bowl of ice cream. And if you were to come up to me and you were to give me a nice, just regular French vanilla with like little sprinkles on top, I'd be perfectly happy. I'd enjoy that ice cream treat. Very nice. But if I was also simultaneously offered like a ice cream sundae with like fudge, cookie dough, and like those little like waffle cone wafers that you can stick down in there. Like, that's the one I'm picking, 
right? Like, like, thank you very much for this one, but I will have this one, please, right? And so in comparison, if I had to choose one, and to choose one is to say that I love that one, then I must to some degree not love this one or hate this one somewhat, right? And so this is sort of a, an ancient way of kind of talking about this choice of saying that if you have to pick one over the other, it is to say that you love one but hate the other. And so that's this kind of philosophical way of talking about that. And I don't share that to kind of erase the tension that Christ is saying here because it's most certainly still choosing to prioritize Christ over family, over desires, over your own life, over your own heart's wishes. I think one of the best quotes that I found to kind of describe this tension was written by St. Gregory. Um, And here he says, In this world, let us love everyone, even though he be our enemy, but let us hate him who opposes us on our way to God though he be our relative. We should then love our neighbor. We should have charity towards all, towards relative and towards strangers, but without separating ourselves from the love of God out of love for them. Man, that that last part of that quote is just so powerful, right? Not separating ourselves from the love of God out of love for them. This is, this is like such a hard thing to kind of get my head around sometimes. It's just that by, if I choose to prioritize someone in my life above God, to say that I love them more than I love God, I'm, I'm making them functionally my God. I'm saying that I will do whatever it takes to love you, to make you happy, and in doing so, I'm setting up an expectation that you are deserving of all that. I'm setting up an expectation that I'm going to get something out of that that is equally valuable. That if I'm willing to give all of myself to a person, to a thing, I'm saying that I will get what, is, what I expect out of this and it will satisfy me. But that's a kind of weight that you never want to have put on yourself. Like that's crushing if someone were to come up to me and say like, I love you so much, I love you more than God. Like you are the person I'm committing my life to. I am not by any means of the imagination deserving of anything close to that. I can't bear up to that weight. I will absolutely always disappoint with that expectation. But if I put Christ first, if he is the person who I love most, he is the one who I trust in for my satisfaction and security, I can rest in his love and now I can freely love others. I can love others without the expectation that they will give me what I desire back. And so we have this picture here that Christ is giving of saying, prioritize what you love. Prioritize who and what you serve. And I have to be on the top of that list. You have to follow me. You have to be willing to even hate your own life. And that, that costs us something, doesn't it? Like, reordering the things that we love in our lives is a difficult process. It's going to cost us something. It means something that's on the top of the list might have to move down a couple rungs. And that costs. And that's what Christ talks about in these next couple verses in chapter 14. He says here in the beginning of verse 28, he says, For which of you, 
desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not while the other is, yet, is other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for term of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And those illustrations, they, they make sense, right? It sounds very logical. If you're going to build a thing, you ought to make sure that you have the resources and the money to finish building it, right? You don't want to be stuck halfway. You don't want to encounter an army and not be able to counter it back. And it kind of sounds kind of silly, but I want to share sort of a modern example of that. Um, in the city of Chicago, there were these plans to build what was going to be called the Chicago Spire, and they had this concept for it. it. At the time, they were hoping and planning for it to be like the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere. They were really excited about it. And they even broke ground on it. They even started the construction. They started building the foundations and getting ready for it. But then some things happened. They kind of ran out of money, sort of changed hands a couple times. Some red tape politics got involved. And today, it just sits empty. Like, I walked by that. Like, that's just, just an empty hole in the ground with some trees and some grass in it. It's, it's just an empty lot like that. It's, 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 it's worthless. It's, it's, it's a useless thing. Of what use is a hole in the ground? Of what use is an army that cannot meet its enemy? Of what use is a fan of Christ and not a follower? And Christ answers it. He doubles down on his point in these last two verses. In verse 34, he says that salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's a challenge, right? To, because of what use is a fan of Christ and not a follower? Someone who is merely only half committed to Christ, not willing to surrender all, not willing to denounce all, to put Christ above the thing when it comes to the decision time. Of no use is what he's saying. And that last part, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We today sit in the same space that the crowd sat in when Jesus first said these words. He turned to them and he gave them these words. He gave them this challenge, this call out to discipleship. And we too have now heard those very same words. And that crowd had to decide, what are they going to do? Are they going to continue to follow Christ? Are they going to say that Jesus Christ is worth it, that following this man is worth it? Or were they going to decide this is too much? 
I'd rather be called to something easier. I'd rather follow somebody that doesn't ask so much of me. I'd rather pursue what I want to pursue. And that's the place where we sit. What will we do with these words? And so I want to give us a moment to kind of begin to start that process. How do we even do this? How do I evaluate my order of loves, the things that I prioritize above Christ? And so I want to kind of give a diagnostic question to you that I have found immensely helpful in my life, that I ask over and over throughout different seasons as a way of taking stock of seeing where my heart is at in relation to Christ. And I I truly want us to do this together here this morning. I want us to, to pause, to open up our hearts, to be willing to let the Spirit press upon us the truth that he has for us. And so what I would have you do is I would have you finish this question for yourself or finish this sentence. And the sentence is this, I would be truly happy if only I would be truly happy if only I had the job I want. I would be truly happy if only my family was the way I wished it were. I would be truly happy if only I had the relationship status I wanted. I would be truly happy if only I got a raise and I had the prestige and recognition I deserved. What is the finishing of your sentence? What is your if only? Because that thing, whatever follows, is the thing that you're giving power over your life. It's the thing that you are saying is functionally your God. You're saying, if only I have this thing, then I will be truly happy. I will be satisfied. And that is a terrible place to be because you're in bondage to that thing. And if you've been around long enough and you've had the ability to finish and to achieve your if only more than once, you know that there will always be another thing at the end of that sentence. You might get the relationship status, the job, the prestige that you want, but you will still want something else. You will still say, oh, but only if I had this. If only things were this way. And that is a awful place to be because we have this thirst, this desire that we want to satisfy. But chasing our if-onlys is like drinking salt water. And Christ is here and he is saying, I am the living water. I am here for you. I bring true satisfaction. I am where life is found. And so, If we truly believe that whatever our if only is will give us true happiness, of course we will always choose that over Christ. And we're believing a lie. We're following a lie. We're choosing something that ultimately will not satisfy. Because we have to believe, we have to understand and know that Christ is truly the greatest treasure. He is where we find true life meaning, and love. And that is, if I have one thing to communicate to you today, that is that, that Christ is worth it. That Christ is worth so much more. He is worth sacrificing and surrendering your if only to meet and to know him. 
We have to believe what it says in Romans 18 where Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Or what Christ says in a parallel passage in Matthew 10 where he says, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do we believe those statements that if we truly surrender our life to Christ, that we will find a life that is so much more precious than anything we could dream of? We're chasing our if-onlys. We have this limited expectation. And, and we are limited, right? We are finite beings. We grow weary. We grow tired. We grow hungry. We cannot go on forever. We perish. And so we are finite in every aspect of ourselves, except for in one thing, and that's in our hearts. That's in our desires. We will always want a little bit more, a little bit more love, a little bit more of that thing that we desire. We find that our desires are insatiable. They cannot ever be truly satisfied forever. And so that begs the question, perhaps we are not meant to be satisfied by anything in this limited world, but we're rather meant to be satisfied by something or rather someone who is limitless. And that is what Christ is calling us for. In, in Ecclesiastes, it says that God put eternity into the heart of man. God designed us for something more. He put a longing in us that only he can fill. And that is what Christ is calling us towards, is to say that, Christ, you are worth it. You are worth laying down my if only. I'm not going to chase these things that sparkle, that glitter, that I want and desire so much, but I'm going to trust that if I give this to you, that if I am a true disciple, I follow after you, that I will find something that is so much greater and grander, something that is so much more worth it. And that's hard for us to get our minds around. But I believe that is where we find truth. Because here we have in Christ, right, in order to do this, in order to truly lay aside our if only, we have to let go of it, right, in order to lay hold of Christ. We can't, if our hands are full of the things we're trying to grab for ourselves, we're never going to be able to lay hold of Christ. And so I want to give just a practical suggestion for you. I, I think um, a spiritual discipline is perhaps uh, a really helpful way of, of thinking and reflecting through this. Uh, and so this is the season of Lent, so some of you, many of you may be fasting in some form or fashion during the season leading up to Easter. And I think fasting is a spiritual discipline that I don't think gets enough uh, credit, is not maybe highlighted enough. And it's, it's, it's a way of physically saying, right, perhaps as much as my body desires and longs for food, Christ, my soul and my heart desires all the more for you, right? In fasting, it's a way of saying this thing that I want, I desire, is nothing in comparison to my desire for Christ. And so I would encourage you, whether you're fasting currently or, or thinking about it, to take just some time this week to abstain from a single meal or 
uh, or an activity and spend 10, 15 minutes in prayer. Perhaps journaling out what are your if-onlys. What are those things that maybe Christ is calling you to sacrifice to him? Those things that he says, this is an area where I want to meet you. This might be a good thing, but I truly am a better thing than that. And I, I would just encourage you to do that as a spiritual practice. And I think if we were to truly do this as Christians, if we were truly to be disciples like Christ is describing the, there, disciples who are willing to say, this might be a good thing, but I'm rather, I'd rather pursue the better thing in Christ. I would rather be a disciple who is formed by Jesus, not just a fan of him. Think of how that could begin to change our lives begin to change our families and our surrounding communities, how the impact we will begin to have because our lives will begin to look different. I sometimes wonder to myself why the world doesn't find the Christian story more compelling, why they don't find our faith in Christ more real. And perhaps it's because we are more fans than followers. Perhaps it's because our lives are marked by the same desires that they have. But what if our desires begin to shift? We begin to see the world and our neighbor with the eyes of Christ. We begin to want to show love to others around us, not to get love back or to feel good about ourselves, but rather to show the love of Christ to them. The freedom that can come out of breaking that cycle of chasing if-onlys. And at that point, we're no longer fans we're no longer admirers. We are truly followers of Christ. We are those who are willing to lay our own lives down in order to find true and eternal life in Christ. And I think at that point, we've found what it is to be a true disciple.